Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms. I am Carolyn Ford, here with Mark Snell. Hello, Mark. Hello, Carolyn. <laughs> Today, we welcome Colonel Candace Frost, Joint Intelligence Operations Center Commander, JIOC, at United States Cyber Command. And we're excited to get Colonel Frost's insight on the Cyber Command, how it's working to create a center focused on all source intelligence, and how the JIOC enables the DOD to continuously stay ahead of the adversary. Welcome to Tech Transforms, Colonel Frost. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. And how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Things are things are moving along in Cyber Command today. Yep. Well, that's good to hear. Well, I am fascinated by your career. So I've I've done a little cyber stalking and <laughs> learned that you were with the Army for 20 plus years in various parts of the world and have worked your way to being the JIOC commander of the United States Cyber Command. And would you mind taking a minute and just sharing with our audience um, your journey to becoming JIOC commander and um, your role at JIOC? Sure, and and thanks for having me on here. And it's great to kind of get to tell um, your listeners about how awesome it is to work in Cyber Command and, and the impactful and meaningful work that we do. I started as um, a, a very young Padawan in mere Muscatine, Iowa, and I never in the world imagined I would end my um, in my career right around Washington, D.C. and have such an impactful job as I've kind of maneuvered throughout this space in the military I was very fortunate to go from Iowa to West Point, New York, and go to school at the United States Military Academy. And after graduating from such a transformative leadership laboratory and in an environment that really sought out um, how to challenge oneself in, in totally different ways, it sparked in me the sentiment to really seek out hard jobs that challenged me. But through those kind of multiple challenges, I had a chance to learn by doing and each step and each iteration of the different jobs that I was in and the environments of growth uh, that I got to maneuver around in. So whether it was deployments to Bosnia, a couple to Afghanistan, uh, being in a, a really tough combat environment, I took the opportunity to focus in my world that I live in, which is military intelligence, to look at those threats to our national security. And that's really the common thread that's weaved throughout my career is, you know, where do, where have I leaned into? And it's it's been in national security all the way from um, counterinsurgency operations to where I'm at and cybersecurity. I've had an, a dynamic role as it's changed and uh, and I've had a really good ride throughout my entire career. So, so, so was your, was the start more around intelligence? Was that kind of like the core of what you did? Cause I imagine as you think about over the course of your career, cybersecurity, IT, the cloud, all these things, they probably didn't really even exist, you know, like that in that fashion, you know, when you started. Exactly. So, 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one thing I tell um, young professionals, I'm, I'm really lucky to get to teach as well. The things that you are seeing right now and you're studying, you know, at your undergrad or graduate level, they might not even exist 10 years from now. There may be a totally different and dynamic threat. But if you understand how to be a, a learner and look at new problems and think innovatively, you'll find great success in that. And you're absolutely right. There's no way I would have thought in my computer science class that I would have ended up at this really wonderful dynamic command. Um, I started in my very first assignment was really um, with counter narcotics and looking at um, different arenas there. So yeah, it has moved in all sorts of different areas. And and that's where you've just got to be able to lean in to think about how do threat actors act. I got to put you on the spot here. What was the language that you learned in that first computer science class? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, C plus. Yeah, uh, that's that was the grade I got. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, I joke with other people. I'm a poli sci person. Um, and that's again why I keep telling audiences look, there's a big tent in cybersecurity. And we need people from all different walks of life to come join us because it's just such a, it's a hugely dynamic environment, but we've got to have people that think in totally different ways. And that's what I bring to the table. So, so, so your path, your path went from like intelligence, military intelligence into cybersecurity, which I, I mean, you know, I'm, you know, you see the, you see the journey and how that applies. Um, do you see a lot of the folks in the military like going from the intelligence into this, or is it more like the IT kind of direction that you that you know where you're where you're getting that, people? Great, great question. I really think it's a bifurcation of both. I think you have mm-hmm. that heavy tech skill that comes in and, and they grapple with the really hard both engineering, computer science. Uh, data problems. We have amazing data scientists that that are on board that do this as well. And then you have the people that that kind of critical creative thinking from a different perspective of they understand how do how do malicious actors act? You know, it's not that different from understanding a criminal that's breaking into a house as to how does malware and ransomware work. Once you understand the mechanism uh, and the delivery of different and means and methods to, you know, obscure their actions or, or collect information, there's a very linear path that you can follow that, that kind of lends itself into this space. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So first I need to, I don't even know if Mark caught this, but you made my day by referring to yourself as Padawan, who has now (laughs) gone full Jedi. Thank you. (laughs) I didn't catch that. (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't think so. It's okay, Mark. It's okay. Um, I I want to know more about JIOC and how it enables the DOD to stay ahead of the adversary. Like what's, I guess, uh, l- let me pause there and have you respond to that. Absolutely. So our kind of, our short term for the calling of this organization, the JIOC, because um, we have an acronym for everything. And definitely in the cyber community, they have more acronyms than you can imagine. In the Department of Defense, they win. Uh, but 
My role as a commander, I have about 300 phenomenal employees from both the Department of Defense, all the uniformed service members. That makes up about 25% of my organization. But about 75% come from the intelligence community and the Defense Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency. And we even have some NGA employees, some um, wonderful GEOINT teammates that are with us. And those um, great analysts uh, come together to really look at how do we look at really dynamic problems in this ecosystem um, of threats that exist in the cybersecurity world. And we provide, um, whether it's advice to the operators that are on the physical networks doing things for offense or defense, and we also writ large um, on a larger scope, provide advice to the all the way up to both the joint staff and then the National Security Council on here are the large threats and these are areas that we should pay attention to. So it's really great to lead an organization of incredibly dynamic individuals who really want to make sure our networks stay safe and secure. Uh, and it's it's a fun ride that the JIOC has been able to really grow and uh, and serve the community well. I like JIOC. It's better than J-I-O-C. J-I-O-C kind of sounds like a Star Wars name too. So it is kind of cool. Yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> so it seems like it seems like this journey, like from an industry person looking in, that that it seems like that uh, you know the government agencies kind of tackled this kind of stuff all their own, and then we created the U.S. Cyber you Command. Mean, like different. Yeah. 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 Okay. How how has the communication and collaborate collaboration morphed over your time seeing kind of the development of this stuff because it seems like a bigger issue than just like the one agency being able to tackle it seems like we'd be much better doing it this way um obviously but right it uh, so our work and our role as the department of defense we are truly external facing right those threats that are coming in from other nation state actors uh, we have great partners with the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency and CISA and Homeland Defense, and also the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So both the FBI, CISA, ourselves, um, the intelligence community, NSA, it's, it's a true collaboration. But it's not just in government. This isn't a problem that merely um, government employees can solve. We need to partner absolutely with, and we have found great um, strides with partnering with academia and also partnering with the private sector and businesses. Uh, not only those that we hire for you know what we do, but also for collaboration. The Cyber Collaboration Center is a great example of that, mm-hmm. hosted by the National Security Agency. And they do, Morgan Adamski runs um, just a, a phenomenal organization of reaching out to businesses to talk about, hey, these are things that are upcoming and potential threats. But we want to also make sure things that come into the defense industrial base are really secure. And so that work, that effort um, has grown and, and just leaps and bounds over the last couple of years. Cyber commands were truly teenagers. We've only been around for um, so many years. So as one of the um, truly youngest, not, not counting space, but as the one of the younger combatant commands, we have found a different way of doing business and supporting the other land-holding combatant commands um, in a different and unique perspective. I think I, 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 I see the, when you talk about 
partnering with academia and industry. I see what the the positives that you leverage there, but I'm a natural cynic. So, you know, I got to say this, how do you grade the risk of like working with the two, like industry and what kind of risks there could be? Like, you know, they're like, you know, there was yeah, uh, there been vectors, right? Like solar winds, like solar winds yeah. and, and, and even academia where people now are saying, oh, where well, there could be foreign, um, you know, influence in there. How do you how do you grade that out? So I think it's it's not necessarily graying out, but it's looking at, uh, hey, what do you do best? Right. We have to understand um, and it takes a person that leans into different kind of different sectors. Right. Things that are done in business, um, there's a different motivation and initiative for, for that sector versus the academic sector. There may, there may be people that are very motivated by sharing information with someone else, collaborating or writing a book or writing papers, or even working towards tenure. That's something that we see very differently. So it's understanding where we can harvest the best parts and not obviously with anything, you know, we, we live in an environment of of zero trust. Um, we're not opening uh, the the front doors, but we're also saying, hey, we both see this as a problem. A great example is missing disinformation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, oh, going yeah. hearkening all the way back to the 2016 elections. There mm-hmm. are tons of academics that worked on this um, and really saw from a truly unclassified perspective um, how different nation states kind of came in and got into the information ecosystem. Uh, we're able to work with them and lead forward to the 2022 midterms and then obviously project all the way forward to the 2024 uh, presidential elections. That's a great example and work together. Ooh, can you talk more about, okay, so you just talked about one threat trend is that disinformation. Um, what are you can you share like what you think the trends are, especially coming up with the the elections, what you see the the biggest risks and trends? Yeah, I think um so when we look at different nation states and the work that we have done with kind of great power competition, we really truly see the laboratories and kind of businesses across the globe. Um, they're reaching almost a critical inflection point and and I'll speak specifically to China and Russia um, because their reliance on adversary truly like microelectronics to accomplish their state goals um, to modernize. And there are big areas, um, not just the elections and the, the information domain and that ecosystem, but also in quantum science, biotechnology, artificial intelligence, and then automation. Those are really big areas that we kind of see going forward that we have to pay attention to in our world um, that looks at different threats. You know, China does a very unique way of looking at a whole of nation approach, much different to the way we do whole of nation of kind of, you know, the greatness of um, democracy and our capitalistic kind of formula of business. They are very focused on how their tech develops and then also obviously sharing with um, the People's Liberation Army and how they behave, both integrating tech. We know that they are really looking at AI and how that can constitute an almost major revolution in military affairs. I'll, I'll geek out in the army terms on you. You know, what would be a truly changing trip, tipping point 
into how we fight our nation's wars. Um, China is leaning into that, but I'd be remiss to not mention Russia um, and how they've worked with China incorporating AI. But the the applications that they've seen in both um, kind of getting speed and effectiveness by using different types of technology, um, we've seen great their attempts at strides in Ukraine. But at the end of the day, when we really harken back to what the you know the nature and character of war. That nature of war really has remained the same. The characteristics may change with it's, you know, looking at quantum computers or something like that. But the, but really the nature of why states fight each other um, has remained really the same. And we see that in Russia, Ukraine right now. So that's interesting. And if I if I heard that right, it sounds like maybe the psychology of the the nature of cyber uh, security, offensive and defensive is critical kind of the understanding the psychology and then and that helps tremendously and we've had some great academics kind of come and help us shape our strategy the goal of um, persistent surveillance is that area that that we have kind of put the stake in the ground to say there's a method to how we see the world with respect to great power competition and we've got to constantly remain aware um, dr goldman is one of those thought leaders in this area, that she is someone that the research that she's done and looking at this is is worthwhile to really look at. Her research in AI or in? Oh, her research in how we view ourselves in strategy and cybersecurity okay. and kind of how we lean into the, the doctrine of uh, persistent engagement and what it really mm-hmm. means. What, what's been one of the most effective ways you've seen China and, and Russia implement AI? I think the most effective way we've seen both of them work together, not not per se always in AI, but in, in different areas when we look in this technological kind of domain and in the silo, um, they really require on foreign equipment. They require, require materials and intellectual property that comes from all around the world. This isn't internal to them. And, and for ourselves, protecting that is it's incredibly tough. And um, we've seen things of this administration with respect to sanctions, but that still isn't able to always answer and stop off um, all the demand and need they have for whether it's microelectronics or different chips. Um, we've we've tried to stop this, but it's it's an area that's really tough to cut off. Well, yeah. And to your point, like trying to stop. So the FCC, I, I hope I'm getting this right. It's pretty recent. They put a ban on Chinese components, right? What do we do about the Chinese components that are already embedded in all of our systems? And that might be more than we have time to address. You're talking like TikTok, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, TikTok, but also like Chinese components, like Mm -hmm. in our technology. But yes, TikTok too. We can go there. Well, what I'd say is, number one, I don't let my kids download TikTok. Um, I'm unpopular mother of the year. Uh, but number two, I, I think that was addressed really in the CHIPS Act. And and we have, the, aforementioned um, the great work of Ms. Adamski and the work that she's done in the Cyber Collaboration Center. We are trying to lean lean forward, especially the National Security Agency is, and saying, hey, we we need to help and let's talk through this. Let's have a conversation to make sure 
our networks are as secure as possible and, and also the components that are used, especially in things that service um, the national security. So it is a continual conversation that we're having. Mm. Have there been any um, trends in cyber security or cyber threats that have surprised you or that delight you? I mean, I have some, I, I know <laughs> stories of, that actually I think are very funny when it comes to cybersecurity, but also serious. Is, are there any that you can think of? I think one of the more serious ones that, that I have seen propagate is that um, the good news is that hard targets are getting harder to, to maneuver in and towards. And that's the strength of hundreds of thousands of people that are working in this field. What the do you mean by is, hard, hard targets? Harder targets with respect to the banking industry. Um, some of those areas that are really, you know, when we look at critical infrastructure, we're not 100% there. But um, some of those areas that were persistently targeted by uh, either nation states or, or bad criminals and actors, they've done a great job of kind of growing their resiliency and hardening themselves. And that's, that's really phenomenal to see in a short period of time. But the bad news is, is that sometimes cyber, you know, bad actors, malicious cyber actors are going for the easier wins. Um, and that's targeting things like school districts. Um, targeting and holding, unfortunately, children's information hostage um, and asking for ransomware payments. And to me, um, we have seen such an exponential growth in that area, um, targeting schools, that it's just really shameful. And and we'll have to figure out how do we really crack this nut. Um, it's a growth opportunity for students, I think, to see, you know, it's, where do you start and understand that maybe 100% trust isn't awesome and putting all your information out there may not be the way to go in life. Um, those kind of small steps. Um, but we also don't want to live in an environment of fear. And I think by teaching kids about cybersecurity early, just as we used to teach kids about buckling their seatbelts when they got into a car, um, as, as a mom, I threw my hands up in great glee the first time I heard both kids buckle themselves in. I want to have that kind of cyber moment in our heads of security, when each of our users on any platform at all buckles their seatbelts in for safety, um, we've got to make that multi, you know MFA multi-factor authentication. Uh, we've got to understand things like that have just got to become second nature, and uh, and, and we'll a get bigger there. Task just, than you realize. Yeah, yeah, but so but so were seatbelts back in the day, mm -hmm. right? There were a lot of protests against that and people didn't want to have to do something. The government was telling them to do that. So how do we encourage companies to bake safety in before the product is launched? Um, that's another pivot that, that we can go down because you run the risk of having all of your intellectual property stolen. Nobody likes to be robbed. So how do we kind of encourage that? Again, um, this is a process because this dynamic environment constantly shifts and changes and and uh that's why it makes it such a wild ride I was is this a strategy oh sorry go or, ahead uh, i'm sorry caroline i was gonna say is this a, is this a strategy of like nation states to just to to uh distract us from other things um and you know, and 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 let and go after those uh, softer targets that you had mentioned, or is it more like uh, what you might say, law enforcement, right? Criminal element. 
we're seeing it as a lot of cyber criminals that are out there. Um, but we, we would be remiss not to, to point to, we know that Russia has used proxy actors in the past, mm. um, especially to target the seams in our culture between um, different groups in America to really dive into in the information domain and to try to bifurcate us and split us as Americans. Um, and they've been pretty, you know, we, you, there are some mm-hmm. great CISA documents out there that talk about how mis- disinformation has been used um, by different groups. So I, I'm remiss to point the finger and say this is exactly one thing, but I'd say it's things we should pay attention to. Because even if it's a script kitty that somebody is just learning for the first time and wants to kind of test their hacking skills, it's still illegal. And, yeah. and we need to make sure that we're protecting um, the vulnerable that are out there. I protect the nation as a total, uh, especially our Department of Defense Information Network with my amazing peers here. But we all have a part to play in this. And I think uh, that's a pivot we're going to have to start to take as a nation. What? What would be your like top easy hits, best practices for protecting against some of the the biggest cyber threats that you see? And you you kind of started um, to go down the path a little bit a minute ago, but yeah, I think um, gosh, boy, you know, Director Easterly and the work that CISA puts out, you you would you'd start there. And then if you go at the top shelf, you're going to get the top shelf answer because they have really put out great insights into whatever size business you are, the individual user. CISA works with small, medium, and large size businesses to really ensure that they are working in, in a way that protects themselves, but also they can continue with their business. And they're not so hard to get to that they've shut off the valve to making money and making a profit for themselves. So I think that would be my starting point for everybody listening. Okay. I'm not going to lie. When I start digging into the documents, I can feel a little overwhelmed. <laughs> like there's a lot, there's a lot. So, but it sounds like you can zero in on what applies to you the most. So if you're a small to medium business, go to those sections of the CISA documents. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it is a process. And sometimes I feel like you have to have a PhD in, you know, information technology and cybersecurity. It's exhausting. <laughs> so I always tell people, you know, bite-sized pieces, um, whether it's a five-minute podcast you listen to, or you just say, hey, I'm going to allocate so many minutes of my day to look at this. Or I'm going to look at, hey, do we need to hire somebody uh, in cybersecurity or on the resiliency side? <laughs> Those aspects are easier thought of ahead of time rather than when you need to sound the 911, all the alarms and all the bells and whistles. Um, if you're thinking about that ahead of time and it becomes a part of your corporate culture and your board, it's so much easier to do in advance. Yeah. Um, and and you, you're safer. You mentioned you know, earlier, you said, how do we bake this in from the beginning? So how do you bake it in from the beginning, the cybersecurity? I think absolutely you have to look at where the highest layers of risk are and whether if you're in the tech world, where those areas are that, you know, Mm. we use a tremendous amount of open source code. And so what parts need to be protected? Um, You know, when you look at your business, where are the crown jewels? Obviously, I'm going to make a reference to uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, KFC, their secret spices, right? They protect those crown jewels like no other. So each business is unique in what is incredibly important. And then where those are areas that you can 
either hire out or are not needed to be as guarded. We do the same thing in the military. Where are those areas that we have to have a large, um, you know, huge area of defense for our nation's most critical secrets, all the way down to areas that we still don't want to share, but it's not as important. And I think really prioritization is a, a starting task for that. So, Colonel Frost, how, how do you see? So, so you mentioned this a little bit, but how do you utilize newer technologies, um, you know, like, for example, observability in everyday cyber operations um, to, you know, as you deploy effective cyber defense strategies? So I think one area that that we have found, and I'm going to say less so of the things that we use now, but things that we knew we were missing. How about that? Um, yeah. And kind of holes in our swing. Uh, we had to reflectively look at ourselves. And Russia, Ukraine was a, a great example of where are areas that we just don't have information on. And that's truly foundational intelligence we found in this sector. Um, uh, a kind of akin to that, I, I can make a comparison for myself in the Army. If I look at a T-72 tank, and I can tell you the range, the speed, um, every nut and bolt of that system, and all the different uh, pits, components, you know, who makes up the order of battle, all the way down to the lowest level possible. We don't have that, unfortunately, and and that was a big hole in our swing in this domain at cybersecurity. It's not for the lack of want. It's just for the fact that each of the services kind of has their own portion and piece of the intelligence community that that's theirs that dives into um, science, technology, intelligence, and then order of battle. So by noticing that and working with the Defense Intelligence Agency and, and sending up a lot of requests of how do we get this information? Um, it was very evident that the need for a center to provide this information was an area we had to maneuver into. So whereas we had provided great, you know, wonderful intelligence to, to help out those um, ethical hackers that were out there doing offensive cyber operation, there's just so much information that one DRIOC, as mighty as the 300 people that we have are, couldn't couldn't contain all of it. Um, the same thing with the defensive aspect. Um, there's just so much info that was kind of left on the cutting room floor. So we put that up through um, a request to the Department of Defense. And uh, luckily, we were able to get the concurrence of the Defense Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency to go up to um, the Officer of the Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and Surveillance and really get them to say, yes, we are seeing uh, this is a need, and they formed an, ex an executive steering group. So what it will look uh, like in the future, um, that's the beauty of this. You know, will it, um, when will it, when will it exist? Where will it be? We don't have answers to that yet, but we do have the, the acknowledgement of the absolute need that a service intel center is needed for, for this domain. And I think that's a huge step in the all-source world because Things that are observed, um, the the silo of signals intelligence that the NSA provides us is phenomenal and very deep, but we need the entire picture. And and it's going to be quite the journey for um, future people that are coming into this space to kind of take that take that torch on and move forward. The growth of U.S. Cyber Command to me seems like, you know, probably if I were a youngster coming 
uh, into this field, that would be such a fascinating place to be. Um, you know, it just, it, it seems like that's where a lot of things are going. There, there are a lot of things maneuvering in this area, but we're also just a component of the larger part of the military. And I, I think that's the most exciting part is that you come and work here, you get to serve your nation and learn incredibly exciting technical aspects of this domain. Uh, it's, it's quite the journey. And, and I am in a, I'm a testament to you don't always have to come in with a computer science degree. You can come in with very uh, creative ways of solving problems, and uh, and there's a place for you here. Does the DO Center have a name? It does not yet. The we're looking at the Cyber Intelligence Center writ large, and then I think down the road they'll they'll start to look at how this individual center will kind of grow and expand. What we recognize, there are lots of individual businesses out there that, you know, deal in open source information and intelligence. And we have to be able to find ways to incorporate that into the work that we do, because so much, especially we've learned from Russia, Ukraine is in open source intelligence. So how do you see it impacting the public sector, this new center? So I see the work um, that's done through especially in the public sector, less so it would be more of the defense industrial base that it would have a focus on and less the, the larger. Again, we are just a, a piece of the puzzle of the work that Cyber Command does to protect the Department of Defense Information Networks. That's our number one remit. But in larger areas that kind of bleed into that is the um, critical infrastructure. That's another job that we do. Mm. Um, and, and I've spoken before about the elections. That's just one part of critical infrastructure in our country um, that we lend a hand to and work hand in glove with CISA and FBI. Will you leave that center? <laughs> Pro that <laughs> Probably not. Um, that, that center will stand up several, who knows when. Uh, again, it's kind of moving along the path of our, our um, Department of Defense. So I will, I will probably not be in uniform when that thing kicks off. Oh, what, wait a minute. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, yes, I am, um, I am gleefully headed towards uh, the wonderful world of transition out of the military and towards uh, concluding my military career after 25 years and kind of pivoting into uh, the next sector. And, and it's, uh, it's an exciting journey that I'm looking forward to. Well, well after you, yeah, congratulations. And, and I, I see a perfect segue here going to help industry make that connection, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, what yeah. a resume for that. <laughs> like what? Okay. Let's just go crazy here. <laughs> there have to be things that you just feel like you're banging your head against the wall that maybe you think once you get into the private sector, maybe you'll be able to influence at least from a different angle. Like what, what would be your first wish to make things better from the private sector angle? I think one of the areas from the private sector angle that, that I bang my head on, and this is, you know, almost a, it's a personal thing as well. Um, wouldn't it be nice to, to have someone you just 
you know, you have a trusted agent and, you know, we've got a lot of things going on, but we have an app now that I can order groceries and it comes to my door. Wouldn't it be nice to give them all of my computers, all my cell phones, you know, hey, could you just look on these, all of them, run through everything and make sure it's safe and secure. It's almost like a seatbelt for my family. Um, something that really, uh, you you expect the end user. And I think a lot of companies do this. They expect us to have um, a PhD level or a legal degree to understand what we are clicking or uh, sadly, and I don't think it's intently done maliciously, but just we bypass a bunch of things that don't necessarily keep us as safe and secure as we would, as one would hope or wish. Um, that's one big area. How, you know, how do we keep, how do we keep our kids secure? Um, you I work in this arena and uh, yeah, I'm the evil mom that doesn't let their kid on TikTok. Well, there's a reason for that. Um, and so how we can, we can say these things, but where is, where's the way to really show people this is how it's done um, and make it easy. That's the other part. Just that, make it really, exactly. really easy. If it's not easy, we're going to figure out a way around it. <laughs> yeah, especially we our do, kids are. <laughs> we yeah. do all this all this type of training, uh, you know, in industry and, in, in, you know, the private sector, you know, you would think that they would be doing the same thing in schools, just like they have sex education, right? Yeah, you know, but come on, Mark, this training, come on. Like, we're just like, how do we get through this? How do we beat the system mm-hmm. to not do the training? <laughs> yeah, like, well, maybe we gamify like it. Well, it's, it, it, it's that. And we have to look at our educators. Like I come from, I'm a, gosh, I'm a fifth generation teacher in my family. And um, so we have a long lineage of teachers. Uh, and when you look at how much is put into a kit bag of an individual teacher and the expectations, there's just so much that's added on. And they've got to say what gives, you know, where are the areas that I can scrape off and where are the areas I've got to pay attention to? I think the Department of Education's done a good job of leaning in. We've really, a um, ton of nonprofit organizations have taken this mantle on of, of increasing uh, the ability to do robotics and coding in schools. But it just can't be left for kids that are, you know, an A plus in math because people that are, right. that think in ways of design or they want to be, um, you know, something very creative, uh, or, you know, work in music, they, uh, you don't want to be a musician that gets all your, your music stolen from you. Right. So teaching them those kind of things with respect to safety would be a great way to just incorporate it into your everyday. You know, we used to way back in the day, we would climb under our desk to do drills for a nuclear blast. No. Some of your listeners may remember that, right? They do them still yeah. for like earthquakes. But yes, I remember right. for, I remember the nuclear blast right. drills. Yeah. So if you know how to go under a desk for a tornado or an earthquake or some kind of natural disaster, why shouldn't we say, okay, kids, open your phones and let's make us safe. Make us the most secure that you can be, or I'm going to walk through these things. I think there there's a space for that. And I am absolutely sure there are a ton of nonprofit organizations that have done this and want to do even more in our country to keep our kids safe. I love that. I love that idea of doing a cyber drill because I think it would be more useful than saying, get under your desk. Your desk will protect you from a tornado. Um, I think that a cybersecurity drill would actually be useful. Well, for kids today, it's as easy as getting under their desk because they know how to to navigate devices and technology. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
All I right. like it. We get to move to our tech talk questions, Mark. You know, I love this part. So I get to ask the first one. Um, <laughs> Colonel Frost, if you could go back and give your 18-year-old self a piece of advice, what would it be? I do love this question and the fact that I that I had to think way back to, to 18 years old when I was leaving Iowa uh, for the journey forward into the great unknown. And, and I would, I would whisper in my, my own ear, um, give yourself grace, give yourself the ability to, to take pause and reflect on situations you're in because you're going to be challenged, um, in many different ways and, and, and in, a, in ways you never could imagine. And you're going to do things that are going to be not only life changing for you, but for generations that follow you with respect to, the advent of changing laws to allow more doors to be opened for women. I mean, it's been really incredible to see this change in our military. But along the way, um, I tend to be a person that, um, you know, breaks the rules and then asks questions later. And sometimes um, you have to just take a pause and a deep breath and say, okay, on to the next challenge um, and give yourself the grace that it's not always a linear path. Sometimes your trail is going to be pretty messy and tough to cut through, but gosh, it, it's, it is a great end result. I love that. And I love that little piece of advice for yourself as you start this new chapter of your life. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, for sure. All right, Mark, so, you get the next one. So if, okay. So if you, if you had to describe what a skill set or a personality trait that would best suit people moving into this industry, what would you say it would be? Absolutely. No doubt. You have to be a lifelong learner. Um, you know, you can't just learn Python and be good. You can't just learn C plus or net plus or security plus. I, I think that for some people that with high anxiety, it makes this job really hard. And for those with depression, they just want to put their heads under the covers. But if yeah. you're a lifelong learner and you're the type of person that has an insatiable appetite for, for something that's new and to take on new challenges and to realize you're never going to be the expert, you can't possibly be the person that knows 100% of the information, but you're willing to learn and learn new skills and do new things. That is what is so incredibly pertinent to being successful in this field. Absolutely. Great advice. Yeah. All right. I'm always looking to build my, um, my entertainment list. So give me stuff that you like to listen to or read or watch, um, on your downtime. It, I mean, it can be techie, but it doesn't need to be. I mean, it can be just total trash novels. I really like those. So, <laughs> so, so I didn't expect, so I didn't expect the trash novel. So I'm going to go. I have a couple of techie things. I'll do techie last. Okay. But I would start, um, gosh, the show Severance on <gasps> Apple TV. It. Oh my God. That's my life. Um, anybody <laughs> in the intelligence community, I'm like, you've got to watch this show. It's, Ultimate it's air guy. Really true. Right? Yes. But I just barely yes. started. Yes. So I don't know. Okay. I won't, I won't give anything away, but okay. it is pretty fascinating. And the fact that, like they're pretty spot on um, and how you have to bifurcate the way your life is. So I, I appreciated that. Um, and I'm going to bring out the bibliophile in me. So I'm a, I'm a book reader. Oh, I'll hit podcast next. 
Um, afternoon cyber tea is great. I think that's um, what is it? Afternoon? That, afternoon cyber tea. Okay. Um, it's a Microsoft uh, sponsored product. Um, Anne does a great job of kind of walking us through, hey, what, how are things seen? And she's got a real depth in the field. So it's fun to hear people that she's interviewed and changes that are trying to be made in cybersecurity. Uh, I'd be remiss to mention I have listened to CyberWire for two straight years coming up to Fort Meade. Yep. CyberWire's um, a phenomenal um, podcast that just constantly keeps you up to date. And then um, Click Here is just fun. God. The storytelling ability, grabbing somebody from NPR and putting her into your podcast. Brilliant move um, by by the record and the work that that they've done at Recorded Future for that. So uh, moving lastly to uh, I am a total geek. I'm a book person. Um, that's the way I, I think best. And I would say the, the three that I have read that have been kind of techie most impactful um, Amy Ziegert's Spies, Lies, and Algorithm. She's a Stanford professor. She teaches about the intelligence community and also kind of how um, we've used this space that I'm in now. It's it's insightful for someone who has never been a part of the IC. It's like, man, she picked up on a lot of stuff. We got to get that um, And it's, oh yeah, it's worthwhile. She's just, it's fascinating. Um, it's based on a class she taught at Stanford too. So as, as a teacher who understands a good curriculum, um, I, I appreciated that breakdown. Uh, an older one, I think 2018, this was published. But if you want to understand Russia, Peter um, Pomerantsev, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-T-S-E-V, because I slaughter Russian. Um, the book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. Not like the movie that just came out. This is an actual book. Nothing is true and everything is possible. But it really talks to the way Russians kind of see the world in the information domain and um, the ability to manipulate things. It's it's fascinating. Um, and you could easily see the lines that were drawn to Ukraine by that. Um, and last but not least, uh, Jacob Helberg's The Wires of War. Uh, he does a really good job. When I look at where we're at right now and how we need to maneuver forward in this space, um, The Wires of War is one I give to a lot of people because it really talks to we've got to be aware of where Russia and China, especially China, is in this space. And we can't continue down the same path. I don't want to be um, kind of a warmonger here, but it really talks to the the whole of nation approach and especially how they view things. Um, it, it's good for anyone to read and understand why it's so critical right now at this juncture to lean into this space. And those are, those are my um, entertainment areas. Wow, that's a pretty good list, Carolyn. I mean, we got to get those all in the show notes. It's a great, it's a great list. We'll get them in the show notes and um, good recommendations. I can't. I started Severance. I don't know, maybe a couple of months ago, and the first fifteen minutes of it just made me really like it. It felt scared. It kind of scared me, <laughs> and I was just like, I I can't watch this. So I stopped, and then I I started watching it again a couple of nights ago, and I got through the full first episode, and I'm in, and I'm I'm just thinking, man, this is ultimate air gapping right here. This is the way we do it. So, um, well, before we end, is there anything that you would like? to say to our listeners, anything more? I mean, you've given us so much, but. No, thank you. It's been a real honor to be a part of this. I've 
I've enjoyed um, participating in, and speaking with you all. And my last bit of advice I give to a lot of people I speak with is um, be a mentor to someone out there that doesn't look like you, walk like you, and talk like you. Uh, you got there by somebody else kind of gripping in on your hand and helping pull you up. Um, each of us out there has a responsibility, whether you're a high school student to reach out to another friend or all the way up to college, starting your first job. There's somebody out there that could look to you for advice. So be that person. I That's love great. that. And I, I just want to like, this is personal and we may have to cut this out. <laughs> so I just want to say thank you. When I was in high school, I told my dad, who was a colonel in the army, that that's what I was going to do, that I was going to be the first woman general. That's what I told him. He was a Cold War colonel, and he trapped me in the car to my grandparents, which was a 45-minute drive. Seemed like the longest drive in the world when I was a kid. And he just told me all the reasons why I would not be doing that. <laughs> and there was nobody at the time that looked like me. There was, there were no role models. There were no yous. And um, so in another life, maybe, maybe I'll be you. I just, thank you. I really, this has been, yeah. it's been good talking to you and, and seeing all of your success. and and seeing what you've been able to accomplish. It's incredible. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And, you know, like each generation, I, I have a shirt that it says West Point women, you know, doing great things since 1976. And my daughter saw it the other day. She goes, what do you mean? I just since 1976, West Point's been around since the 1800s. I'm like, check. <laughs> I go, sweetie, Women weren't there until then. And it just the light bulb went off like, oh my gosh. I'm like, yeah, you got to think about the women that even came before me and how hard it was on them. Um, we're just that next generation that passes passes the torch along. And it's super cool to see like women rangers, women going into special forces, like that kind of stuff is awesome because it is, we are all a part of this nation and we should be a part of the solution. So I'm glad to have you been able to kind of share this. Um, we're all going to be a solution to this because it makes us all better Americans if we take care of this country. Yeah. That's, that's inspiring stuff. We really thank you for, for being on the podcast. Uh, this was really, it was really uh, entertaining as well as um, <laughs> inspiring. It was very entertaining. I, we really appreciate your time. Thank you to our listeners. Share this episode, like this episode, and we will talk to you next week on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. 